Uh, if you've got a Bible or your phone, do you want to turn to Psalm 9? It's probably the longest one, I think, that I've done uh, here so far. Psalm 9, 20 verses. I'll read it through and then we'll, we'll go on to our introduction. It's entitled Prayer and Thanksgiving for the Lord's Righteous Judgments. To the chief musician, to the tune of Death of the Son, a psalm of David. I will praise you, O Lord, with my whole heart. I will tell of all your marvellous works. I will be glad and rejoice in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. When my enemies turn back, they shall fall and perish at your presence. For you have maintained my right and my cause. You sat on the throne judging in righteousness. You have rebuked the nations. You have destroyed the wicked. You have blotted out their name forever and ever. O enemy, destructions are finished forever. And you have destroyed cities. Even their memory has perished. But... The Lord shall endure forever. He has prepared his throne for judgment. He shall judge the world in righteousness and he shall administer judgment for the peoples in uprightness. The Lord also will be a refuge for the oppressed, a refuge in times of trouble. And those who know your name will put their trust in you. For you, Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. Sing praises to the Lord who dwells in Zion. Declare his deeds among the people. When he avenges blood, he remembers them. He does not forget the cry of the humble. Have mercy on me, O Lord. Consider my trouble from those who hate me. You who lift me up from the gates of death, that I may tell of all your praise in the gates of the daughter of Zion. I will rejoice in your salvation. The nations have sunk down in the pit which they made, in the net which they hid, their own foot is caught. The Lord is known by the judgment he executes. The wicked is snared in the work of his own hands. Meditation, Selah. The wicked shall be turned into hell and all the nations that forget God. For the needy shall not always be forgotten. The expectation of the poor shall not perish forever. Arise, O Lord, do not let man prevail. Let the nations be judged in your sight. Put them in fear, O Lord, that the nations may know themselves to be but men. Selah. So, we come to Psalm 9. Last time, um, clearly, because we're doing it in order, Phil took us through Psalm 8. Um, it's getting harder and harder to follow Phil. Uh, there's no solar system video tonight. There's no voiceover of uh, the size of planets. I'm sorry. Um, there are at least some slides to hopefully hold some attention and give you the points that we're going through. If, if your brain is anything like mine, it'll be helpful, hopefully. One of the biggest takeaways, though, actually, before we move on to Psalm 9, I don't know if you remember from Phil doing Psalm 8, one of the biggest takeaways uh, for me Uh, from what he did, was actually the verse about the work of God's fingers in creating and sustaining the world. That picture of an artist, but an artist with all the power. That really, that stuck with me from Psalm 8. 
So, Psalm 9. Um, I've entitled it um, on the back of various um, uh, um, reading, Confidence in God. Uh, Hopefully that came across in the reading of it as well. David's confidence in God. So, just by way of introduction, really briefly. So, um, some actually think that Psalm 9 and Psalm 10 were probably originally one psalm. Uh, this is because there's a couple of things that point to that. Uh, firstly, uh, the lack of a heading and introduction for Psalm 10, which we'll find out next time. And secondly, because of the acrostic nature of these two psalms together, uh, resembling the old Hebrew poetry. So this, this form, just in case you're interested, I, I was interested to find this out. Uh, this form of Hebrew poetry took the letters of the Greek alphabet and started each verse or pair of verses with those letters in order. So for us in our alphabet, it would have been A, B, C. This takes the Greek alphabet and every verse or other verse picks up on um, in acrostic nature. There is, however, enough to read and think about in Psalm 9 alone. So we will only be sticking in Psalm 9 tonight. So Liz, tell Phil he's still on Psalm 10. He's not got away with it. Uh, as, you, as we read that, uh, just again to finish this by way of introduction, did you notice... Um, how the disappointment in a world against God is actually not new. We're disappointed sometimes, aren't we, to, uh, in the state of our world, in the state of people around us and the evil around us. But as we read this psalm, we're reminded that this is not new. This psalm could have been written yesterday. Just note, and we're going to talk about this a little bit more, Psalm 9 is a prayer. It is a prayer. David is communicating with his God and Heavenly Father. And then finally, by way of introduction, we're going to split the psalm. Well, it's three headings. It's actually in two parts. Um, So verses 1 to 12, which are David praising and remembering God's faithfulness. And then verses 13 to 20, which are petition for God to take action. But I'm going to take it under three headings, if you'll permit me. So the first heading. Remember. Remember, So this is a backwards look in verses 1 to 12. The first half of this psalm then is David once again recounting his past and wishing to praise his God. In the first two verses in particular, David praises God as he enters his presence in prayer. This is the first Greek letter in the alphabet, actually, in verse 1. We can stop straight away here and take a point of application, I believe, um, from the way that David approaches his prayer in these first two verses. This is exactly how we should begin our prayers. Not by launching into petition, but by taking time to thank and praise God, to acknowledge who he is as we come to him. I wonder if uh, Paul, in the New Testament, Uh, had this psalm in mind when he penned 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 16 to 18. You don't have to turn to it. He says, rejoice always, pray constantly, give thanks in everything, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. I wonder if you noticed in verse 1, when David says, with my whole heart, I will praise you, O Lord, with my whole heart. That's a challenge, isn't it? Nothing is held back 100% to the Lord. 
He then goes on after those first two verses of praise into verses three, and, three to five, three, four and five, to acknowledge before God that he knows it is him, his father, who has delivered him thus far in his life. So this is praise for specifics in David's life. Verses one to two was more general praise to God, applicable to anyone. In verses three to five, David recounts specific items in his life to praise God for. Uh, it's hard when you read it through once, so you might not pick this up, uh, but it was interesting. When you got to um, verse 6, so verses 6 to 8 predominantly, did you notice that it felt less like a prayer? It started as a prayer, and then you get to verses, verse 6, and it takes a slightly different tone. It's like David pauses his prayer to God and is now writing for the reader or the singer of the psalm for us. David is saying in these verses 6 to 8, because you, Lord, have done this for me, I know that you will do for me what I need now. It's a very powerful word in verse 7. That word endure literally means sit. The Lord sits. The Lord will not be moved. So David shows a supreme confidence in his God. He affirms in verse 8 that he knows God will act righteously and deal with the unrepentant evil people. Think here about Genesis 28 verse 15. I am with you and will keep you. I will not leave you until I have done what I have spoken. This remembering this remembering of the past all leads, all leads to and enables David to say in verses 9 to 12, I paraphrase, verses 9 to 12, this is my testimony. And it shows others that they too can trust in God's faithfulness. So David says to us, as the reader of this psalm, or the singer of this psalm, what have you learned from how wonderfully God has dealt with me? We can pause again for a small point of application. This is definitely something that we should often be saying to ourselves, I believe, particularly when we're tempted to doubt God's faithfulness to us. I can't be the only one. We should see how God worked in years gone by. We should see how God has worked in our very own, our very own lifetimes, as well as in times gone by. And we should conclude that God has actually always been good. Read the end of verse 10 again. You, Lord, have not abandoned those who seek you. So that's, remember, that's the backwards looking. The second point then, as we come into the middle of the psalm, know your context. So that's the present. Know your context. So in this section of six verses, we have a new plea in verse 13 to 14 from David but immediately followed by an assurance that he confessed again in verses 15 to 18. Appreciate I'm getting you to look back at this and uh, keep up. So in this section of six verses, in verse 13 to 14, we see David's new plea for help and an assurance confessed in verses 15 to 18. So there's a fresh emergency for David in verse 13 to 14, a trouble of today not one in the past now. And David 
doesn't hesitate in bringing this fresh need to God. But did you notice then, as I've just alluded to, how he reassured himself straight away of God's past blessings and care to give him confidence? Again, you may not have noticed just reading it through once, but if you look back again, verses 15 to 16 are actually a reflection of verses 5 to 6. So David is reminding himself now of exactly what's happened in the past. And verse 18 reinforces verse 10. I don't know if you remember, but in Psalm 7, we looked at this pit that was made to catch others, but actually caught themselves out. It's exactly the same in verse 15 here. The nations have sunk down in the pit which they made, in the net which they hid, their own foot is caught. On verse 16, Calvin commented thus, that when the wicked find their evil plans rebounding on themselves, it hasn't happened by chance. Rather, it was the work of God and a notable proof of God's judgment. So how or why is David so able to encourage himself and to stir himself up again? He's got this fresh trouble. He brings it to God. And in the next verse, he reassures himself that it's all going to be okay. How or why is he able to do this? Is it just because he has experienced God's deliverance in past days? Partly, yes. But also because, and this is important, David sees the character and the consistency of a just God, of his just God, who has given that past deliverance. So he's experienced God's deliverance, but he knows who God is. He knows who this God is that has given him the deliverance. He knows his character. He knows his heart. So put another way, David's faith here is bolstered by knowing who God is, as well as by experiencing what God does you follow that so david can therefore pray confidently now there's an obvious point of application here for us i think we must be seeking to know the god of the bible our father the same way that david knew we need to be seeking to know who he is so that we can trust him at all times and especially when we feel weak in ourselves because that's what they, exactly what David has done here. In his moment of weakness, his knowledge of who God is has encouraged him along. There's another slightly less obvious point of application, I think, which is we must not be surprised if, if after a wonderful deliverance from God, from a, an affliction or a trial, that we find ourselves with an immediate fresh need, the same as David did here. The narrow way is long, and normally full of lots of trouble along the way. So if you're going through some trial right now, or maybe they'll come on, come on tomorrow, remember your current context. God has been good before, and the same God that has been good to you before promises to walk with you now. And the same God promises to never leave or forsake you. So let's all seek to do what Samuel did in the Old Testament and set up Little stone monuments in our minds, figuratively, at various times so that when we need to, we can look back at those little stone monuments and say with Samuel, up to this point, the Lord has helped me.
Did you notice then in verse 17? Verse 17 talks about the nations that forget God. Now, this actually made, just a bit of an aside, but this actually made me think about what David challenged us with on Sunday evening. Where he says, how many hours do we, or do we dare, go without remembering God? Just the forgetting God bit made me think of that. In this context, though, David is talking about the forgetting of God being associated with forsaking God. Now, that mirrors Isaiah 65, verse 11, which says this. But you are those who forsake the Lord, who forget my holy mountain. I will number you for the sword. That's fairly damning, isn't it, on people who don't follow God. Those that forget God being associated with forsaking him. Verse 18, however, by contrast, verse 18 gives glorious hope. Because verse 18 tells us that the humble, persistent, weary follower of God will find that their hope doesn't perish and that God will not forget their cry. That's a nice thing to remember as we come to prayer tonight, isn't it? As weary followers of God, that the humble, persistent, weary followers of God, their hope will not perish. David at this point may have even had in mind the great deliverance uh, and exodus from Egypt under Moses, some believe. So that's knowing your context. So remembering, looking backwards, knowing your context now then, in, because of what's gone before, and then fairly obviously, I guess, anticipating, which is forward looking. This is verses 19 to 20, the last two verses. Now the quick summary of these two verses could be this. Thy kingdom come now, Lord. Thy kingdom come now, Lord. David here sort of takes a step back from his own situation and he looks at the big picture and he is saying, come and stop the arrogant people, Lord. Come and stop the proud who don't give you first place. I'll read them again. Arise, O Lord. Do not let man prevail. Let the nations be judged in your sight. Put them in fear, O Lord, that the nations may know themselves to be but men. Now, I'm going to quote Dale Ralph Davis. We like Dale Ralph Davis, don't we? Dale Ralph Davis has a wonderful little anecdote, if you'll uh, let me share it with you. I know Matthew used to uh, do this. A little anecdote. In the earlier part of the Battle of Gettysburg, I think I say that right, in 1863, in the American War between the States, things were one confusing mess behind the federal lines. There was a column of General Slocum's troops marching toward the firing line, a line they still could not see. The high screech of the rebel yell rather unnerved them. They were veterans, but there was something about the ungodly racket they heard that put them on the edge of panic. They were passing a little cabin by the roadside, and in front of it was a bent-over old lady. She sensed the unease of the troops, and as rank on rank passed her, she kept soothingly repeating, Never mind, boys, they're nothing but men. One soldier said that these commonplace words uttered in that context seemed almost sublime, and the lads shook off their panic and were brave soldiers once again. So, in our day, 
the so-called superpowers, are merely humans. Flesh made by Almighty God. So praying for the kingdom, as these verses do, praying for the kingdom forces us to remember that there actually there is only one throne that matters and it's occupied by the only divine power. Thy kingdom come now, Lord. Brief conclusion points, which I've noted them all down so that there's no excuse for us not going away with something in our minds. By way of conclusion then, count your blessings. This is putting up like Samuel did the monument of stones. Count your blessings. Remind yourself of God's kindness to you in past days. Secondly then, see our current days in the context or in the light of that remembrance. Today may be difficult. Today might even be bleak. But hasn't God always taken care of us? Thirdly, in conclusion, David did not doubt that God was in control. Not even a little bit. Neither should we. However, this shouldn't stop us asking God to show his power. That's what verses 19 and 20 are doing. Show your power, Lord. Show your justice. Show your majesty. So as we come to prayer, let's make sure our prayers are soaked in faith that is driven, that our faith then is driven by knowing our God. Just like David did. He knew his God. He knew his character. He knew the one to who he was praying. And that gave him confidence. Can you see verse 10 one more time? It is up here on the screen in large if you want it. Those who know your name will put their trust in you. So your name, those who know your name, that is God's character, God's person. Those who know your name will put their trust in you. For you, Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. Hopefully that's an encouragement as we come to our prayer time shortly.